right, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter number 17. We'll begin reading in just a moment in verse number 8. Let me make a few comments before we begin. Um, some clarifications that need to be made on the front end of our teaching of this passage. We're going to be talking primarily this morning about leadership. Now, the scary thing about talking about leadership is that almost immediately when you introduce the topic of leadership, there are certain concepts or notions with regards to leadership that enter our mind. Now, I just want to challenge you and, and maybe remind you that there are a lot of really bad examples of leadership in our country and our culture today. And so my encouragement is that we think of ourselves as leaders after the model of Jesus that says greatness in the kingdom is not about being first, it's about being last. And guard ourselves against contemporary ideas or understandings of leadership. Everybody wants to wear a crown, but nobody wants to wear a crown of thorns. And that's precisely what Jesus has called us to do as leaders within the kingdom. There's also the danger um, that if you don't hold what you regard to be a leadership position, that you'll just kind of space out for the first two-thirds of this message. And I want to challenge you that if you are here as a believer in the gospel, that you have leadership responsibilities, whether they be in your home or within your sphere of influence, all of us have been called upon to be leaders in the sense that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ, ministers of reconciliation, pleading with the world around us to repent of sin and to come to faith in Jesus before it is everlastingly too late. So we may be talking about leaders as though it's this unique category of people, but for those of us who are kingdom people, we have been called upon uniquely, each of us, to serve in some leadership capacity. So be careful, one, that you don't filter leadership through contemporary models of leadership that you may see in the 24-hour news cycle, and be careful that you don't sort of space out and disqualify yourself as a leader because you don't see yourself as holding a position of special leadership. If you've regarded yourself in that way, it's probably because you've been thinking about leadership as it's modeled in contemporary circumstances, not as Jesus has described it in the Gospels. So with all of that in mind, I want you to turn your attention to Exodus 17 and verse number 8. We're going to read a lengthy passage together. If you find your way there, as you find your way there, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 17, beginning in verse number 8. The Bible says, At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, Select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, but whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. 
The Lord said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner. He said, indeed, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he'd sent her back, along with her two sons, one whom was named Gershom because Moses had said, I've been a foreigner in a foreign land, and the other Eliezer because he had said, the God of my father was my helper and delivered me from Pharaoh's sword. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and then kissed him. They asked each other how they'd been and went into the tent. Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardships that confronted them on the way, and how the Lord delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Praise the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from Pharaoh and the power of the Egyptians and snatched the people from the power of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly Against Israel. Then Jethro, Moses' father in law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father in law in God's presence. The next day, Moses sat down to judge the people, and they stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father in law saw everything he was doing for them, he asked, What is this thing you're doing for the people? Why are you alone sitting as judge? While all the people stand around, uh, around you from morning until evening. Moses replied to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. Whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I make, decision, or make a decision between one man and another. I teach them God's statutes and laws. What you're doing is not good, Moses' father-in-law said to him. You will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, because the task is too heavy for you, you can't do it alone. Now listen to me, I'll give you some advice and God be with you. You be the one to represent the people before God and bring their cases to him. Instruct them about the statutes and laws and teach them the way to live and what they must do. But you should select from all the people, able men, God-fearing, trustworthy and hating bribes. Place them over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They should judge the people at all times. Then they can bring you every important case, but judge every minor case themselves. In this way, you will lighten your load, and they will bear it with you. If you do this, and God so directs you, you'll be able to endure, and also all these people will be able to go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. So Moses chose able men from all Israel and made them leaders over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times. They would bring the hard cases to Moses, 
but they would judge every minor case themselves. Then Moses said goodbye to his father-in-law, and he journeyed to his own land. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word, that the truths of this text would settle deeply into our hearts, that your will would be done in us, even as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. And you may be seated. Virtually all Bible text, maybe there's an exception that I'm unaware of, so I'll say virtually all, but I think all Bible text speak on two or three different levels. Jesus was the master at this, if you read the sayings of Jesus in the Gospels, but really all biblical texts operate this way. When you read a Bible text, there are three questions that you ought to always ask. One, what does this passage mean within the context of this chapter? For us, the first question is, what does uh, Exodus 17, 8 through chapter 18 and verse 27 teach us? And it, and it does teach us some things practically about leadership. Then you follow that with the question of what this teaches us within the context of the book of Exodus. And then lastly, you want to ask of the text what it teaches us within the context of the Bible. Let's begin practically with what the text teaches us within the context of chapters 17 and 18. There's a real practical message here that's good and wholesome and helpful for us related to leadership. Here, Moses as a leader is really exemplary. He's a leader who has surrounded himself with good, capable men who quite literally hold up his hands in the day of battle, who strengthen him and enable him to be the leader that God's called him to be. At the same time, he's handing over leadership responsibilities as it's appropriate so that all of the functions of leadership are carried out efficiently. This is leadership par excellence. Moses really does a stellar job at leading the people. Now, the need for great leadership is brought about by two separate events. In chapter 17, verses 8 through 15, there is an attack on the Israelite army. The Amalekite people come against Israel. This is their real first battle after leaving Egypt. And it's the beginning of centuries of warfare with the Amalekite people. Understand that what is described here in verses 8 through 15 provide context for what comes in much of the Old Testament. In fact, when Saul becomes king as the first king of Israel, his arch nemesis is the Amalekite people. In fact, he's sent down to the Amalekites, and he fails to kill Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and Samuel veer gruesomely draws a sword and hacks Agag to pieces. He chops him up with a sword. It's a bloody scene in 1 Samuel. And then all the way at the end of Old Testament history, there is the book of Esther. There's a man in the court of King Xerxes named Haman who hates the Jews and specifically a Jewish man named Mordecai, who happens to be the uncle of Esther, who has become by a twist of fate the queen. Now, if you're going to hate somebody, you don't need to hate the queen's kinfolks. But he doesn't understand the kinfolk connection. And the hatred that exists between Haman and Mordecai 
is the direct product of what is begun in Exodus 17. Haman is an Agagite, the descendant of King Agag, the Amalekite. And Mordecai is the descendant of Saul, the king of Israel. He is a Jew by birth. There is a natural enmity that exists between the Amalekite people and the Israelites from this moment forward. It's a critical turning point in Israel's history. The fact that the Amalekites come against Israel means that their military fortitude is about to be tested for the first time. Moses has proven to be a capable spiritual leader. He's proven to be blessed by God, anointed by God, enabled by God in remarkable ways to lead the people. But here, his leadership capacity is going to be tested on the field of battle. Moses serves the people quite well. In one of the most beautiful pictures of leadership and leadership support, we find in verse 12 that when Moses' hands grew heavy, understand that success on the field of battle was to be the product of the lifting of that staff that had been the medium through which God did so many miracles in Moses' life. Moses was there on the hilltop raising high the staff of God, Joshua leading the forces of Israel down below. And the Bible says in verse 12, when Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and, they, and then he sat down on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. And as a consequence, verse 13 says that Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. Later in chapter 18, the situation is somewhat different, but Moses' leadership qualities proved to be sterling once again. He's met by his father, Jethro, and he's judging the cases of the people of of Israel. It's always a fascinating thing to me. They're they're coming before Moses, and there's scores of people. If you can imagine this, uh, this group of more than two million people, all of the cases that might arise from their lives, and all of their cases are being brought before the Lord. The Lord has an interesting way. If you teach, you've experienced this. He always lets you live with a passage in the week before you have an opportunity to teach it. Now, a little confession here. Um, in the transition from, where, from, from Webster County to DeSoto County, Brother Wade did not get his tag renewed in a timely manner. So one of the nice officers in, in our municipality here gave me a prize for that. And so on Wednesday of this week, I got to go down and spend several hours at municipal court. First time as a believer I'd ever been in a courtroom as as the defendant, but there I was. And, and, And one of the bailiffs at the back informed me as we came in, I've never seen us have this many cases before. I think this is a record. And I thought, well, well, bless my heart. And and guess who was second to last? You got that right. In, in strange ways, the Lord lets us live with these passages. Jethro watches Moses trying to preside over all of these cases, and he says, this is not a good setup. What, what you need are multiple judges with you serving as sort of the supreme court. You are the final say when there's a difficult case that needs to be heard. Then they'll bring the case to you. But, but assign judges over hundreds, fifties, and tens so that there's not this backlog of issues that need to be addressed by Moses. And Moses takes the advice of Jethro. 
Now, the message that Jethro brings to Moses is true, not only in the case of his judgeship, but in the case of the Amalekite attack in chapter 17. And here it is. Leaders must understand that you cannot do it alone. Every good leader understands that they are limited by their ability and they are limited by time. Now, we're going to move quickly through some of these. But this is good, practical, sound advice. Especially as a Christian leader, there ought to be a real effort. You should be deliberate about identifying people in your life who are capable of replacing you in the role you're currently serving. It's, it's a ticket to death, to, to death, to death. When, when we as a church or church leaders failed to identify the next generation of leaders and invest in them adequately that they can learn to serve in the capacity that we're serving in at the present hour. It doesn't matter if you're the pastor or if you're a connect group teacher or an usher. It doesn't matter what role you serve in the church. You should be looking for someone with similar abilities and interest, investing in them, equipping and training them to replace you one day very soon. That ought to be the goal, to, to work ourselves, in a sense, out of that responsibility to move on to the next person or the next series of, of trainings and leadership. That's the game plan. That's the goal. This month, we've been uh, emphasizing, hoping to emphasize, and will probably continue to do so for quite some time, connect group involvement. It is my dream that every member of Longview Point would be involved in a connect group. We need more connect groups. And the way we get more connect groups is by current connect leaders and current connect members identifying others within our church who are not connected to connect at all, or who are connected but who have great leadership abilities and beginning to invest in them, train them to do what they are doing at the present hour. This is essentially what Moses does. He, he recognizes that he can't do it alone, that he's limited by his ability, that he's limited by his time. One of the striking things about this passage, and uh, perhaps a part where there needs to be a little conviction for Brother Wade as well, is that Moses is on the mountaintop with the staff. Joshua is below where the rubber meets the road. Joshua, verse 13 of chapter 17 says, defeats Amalek with the sword. Now, here's, here's the way I probably would have gone about this. I said, Joshua, what I think I need you to do is stand up on that hill with the staff and give me the sword. I'm going down where the work needs to be done. I want to be, in, I want to be directly involved. Because in my mind, Joshua probably wouldn't do it the way I'd wanted it to be done. The surefire way to make sure it was done the way I wanted was, would be to go down there and do it myself. And I get all that. And there's a time when that's appropriate. That's my knee-jerk response to most everything. I'll just do it myself, and then I know it'll be done the way I wanted it to be done. But in the kingdom, we've got to be patient. And, and we've got to understand that a part of our responsibility, a part of getting the job done, is not always putting the hand to the plow, but training someone else as to how to put the hand to the plow and living with the consequences and the result of that decision. You cannot do it alone as a leader. And you may feel like you're the champion because you are. 
But trust me, you cannot keep it up. And in reality, rather than being successful, which is the way that feels because we're checking all our boxes, if you're a doer, you feel like you're getting a lot of things done, ultimately you're failing because with you dies the ministry. With you dies the leadership. Backing up and investing in others with the recognition that you can't do it alone alone is a much better investment of your time and effort. You can't do it alone. You're limited by ability. You're limited by time. We see both of these at work in the example of Moses. Here's the second thing. Leaders need trusted counselors. In the case of Moses, it was Joshua, Aaron, and Hur, and Jethro. But in the case of Joshua, Aaron, and Hur, they're there to support him, to strengthen him. There's not a correction here. There's just help. And there are times, leaders, when you just have to get the job done. And sometimes getting the job done means that we're exhausted, we're weary, and we need the strength and encouragement provided by those around us. Everyone needs an Aaron and a Her in their life who can hold up their hands when they're exhausted under the task. Everyone needs those kinds of, of people. In chapter 18, perhaps we have the better example of this. As, as Jethro enters back into Moses' life, observes the way he's handling the judgeship, and says, Moses, this is not good. You need people in your life who have the freedom to say to you, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is not good. What you're doing is not healthy. And the tendency, I think, for leaders is to surround oneself with people who will always be in agreement with what we think is right, who will give us the yes, when what in reality you need are people who are free and confident enough to push back when they feel like you're headed in a bad direction. I've always felt like even within a church staff, it's good to have some friction and tension from time to time. I want to know that the people around me in ministry feel so strongly about what they have been called to do that they're ready and they're willing to speak for their position. Now, everyone tries to interpret everything the preacher says. There is no friction or tension at the present hour. But it's a good thing and a healthy thing at times when that does exist. Now, here, here's the deal. You can take a posture as a leader that will insulate you against trusted counselors. For some of you, the reason people don't come to you, the reason friends and family don't come to you and say, you're wrong on this issue, is because you, you get a scowl on your face when they approach you, or you're just generally not approachable. And, and some of us just have a demeanor that's not very warm in the first place. You need to be careful about that because it may keep you from hearing a word of warning that might have been your rescue from sin, from a bad decision that brings about destruction within your leadership, within your life, within your family, whatever the case would be. You need to be meek and approachable so that brothers and sisters feel the freedom to, re to, to, to report to you about what they see as potential issues in your life. Leaders need trusted counselors, which leads us to a third thing here. Leaders take advice. There are a lot of leaders, and if you follow the pattern for leadership in modern-day America, this would probably be the case for you, who would have said to Jethro, 
Last time I checked, I'm the judge. Nobody asked you, go back to Midian. Now, good leaders will listen to the input of those around them and take the advice. Moses seems to say, you know, that's not a bad idea, Jethro. In fact, verse 24 of chapter 18 18 says, Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. So Moses chose able men from all Israel and made them leaders over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times, bringing hard cases to Moses, but they would judge every minor case themselves. He did exactly what Jethro had prescribed. Yielding to the advice of a trusted counselor does not reveal a weakness in your leadership. In fact, it reveals a great strength. Good leaders know what they don't know. Dangerous people don't know what they don't know. If if you are aware of weaknesses, of of areas within your leadership that, that need encouragement, strengthening, Open yourself to counsel in those areas. And and even where you may be blind to a weakness, there needs to always be an open door, a posture that's warm and inviting to those who might have good, godly, biblical insight as to how to move forward. Here's a fourth thing. Good leaders, and we've alluded to this already, but it's clearly on display here. Good leaders train and empower future leaders. It was Joshua who led the military down in the valley. It, it was the anonymous judges that, that heard the cases of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. In both chapter 17 and the, the attack of the Amalekites and in chapter 18 and this incredible multitude of judicial cases that needed to be heard, in both cases the resolution was to train and empower others to be about that business. This is the beauty of the Great Commission, you understand. The Great Commission has never been about a vocational or singular evangelist who goes and preaches to 30 or 40 or 50,000 people so that the world might come to know faith in Jesus Christ. Those are really rare exceptions dotted scarcely across the history of Christianity. The Great Commission model that Jesus established for us was one of multiplication. Jesus said to all of the disciples, go and make more disciples. And as a new believer becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ, they themselves are the recipient of the same commissioning, go and make more disciples. So rather than having a singular evangelist that represents the gospel interest of our faith family, we have now more than 1,400 evangelists who have all been charged with the Great Commission that we would go and make disciples and that we would go and make the kind of disciples who make disciples. Now, I'm no whiz kid. But I know that 13, 1,400 people can always get more done than one can. And you know the same to be true. And it doesn't take long for that effort to begin multiplying itself exponentially. 
This is a part of who we are as the people of God. This is just good common sense leadership. Good leaders train and empower future leaders, always looking for the next generation of great gospel witnesses. Here's the fifth thing with regards to leadership. Good leaders understand the source of their ability, and they celebrate the work of God. This is important. You won't find Moses strutting about the valley at Rephidim, pounding his chest at what a great victory he'd achieved on that day. In fact, when given the opportunity to share of what had been happening in his life and the experience of Israel, all the glory and praise and honor is given to God. In verse 7, the Bible says in chapter 18, verse 7, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. And they asked each other how they'd been and went into the tent. They began to catch up. They began to make small talk about how things had been going. Look, listen to verse 8. Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that confronted them on the way, and how the Lord delivered them. Not how Moses delivered them with his exp expertise and leadership ability, not how the military fortitude of Israel had brought them this far, no. Moses recounted for Jethro all that God had done, how God had delivered them from the oppressive hand of the Egyptians, how God had given them victory on the field of battle against the Amalekites. And listen, if you're a person who struggles with beginning gospel conversations, and, and I, think this is a, I think this can be a struggle for every. I live under the constant conviction that I need to be more focused and more intentional about engaging people in everyday conversations about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know how Moses began this gospel conversation? That's what it is. Jethro said, how are you? Moses said, let me tell you how I am. And let me tell you why I'm in such good shape, because of what God has done for me. Maybe, maybe we could leverage the hospitality of our friends and neighbors for good gospel conversations. The next time they ask, how are you? We might just tell them, I'm good. Living abundant life and the hope of everlasting life because of what Jesus Christ did for me at the cross. You see how easy that is? Now, the trick is in Mississippi, when we ask people how they're doing, we really don't care. We really don't want, we don't, we don't want to hear, and we hope that things are going well or we're going to be locked into a conversation. But hey, they ask, so we get to tell, right? Jethro says, Moses, how you been? And he says, I got some news for you. God's been good. Moses celebrates the work of God. The credit, the glory, the praise, the honor goes to God and to God alone. Good leaders know how to celebrate rightly what God is doing in their midst. And sometimes our most effective outreach efforts are the product of merely celebrating what God is doing among us. If you speak positively about what God is doing in your life, if you speak positively in the workplace or at school or even at play about what God is doing in our faith family, it has, it has a positive effect on the gospel advancement that we're able to be a part of. Celebrate what God is doing in your life and watch what God does through the celebration. 
This idea of celebrating the work of God helps us to transition away from what I'm calling here the practical message of Exodus 17 and 18 to the theological message of Exodus 17 and 18. Here, Moses tells Jethro about what God has done, and Jethro's response is just phenomenal. Look to chapter 18 and verse 9. Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Praise the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from Pharaoh and the power of the Egyptians and snatched the people from the power of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. Now, Theologically, Jethro has just made a confession of faith. These are the words of a convert. Now, he's introduced once more in verse 1 of chapter 18 in this way. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything God had done for Moses and his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. He's introduced, as he comes back into Moses' life, as the priest of Midian. And now, in verses 8 through 10, he's making a confession of faith that Yahweh is greater than all other gods, worthy of our worship and praise. He says in verse 11, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. He has proven his power in your life, Moses, and the experience of, of Israel. Moses celebrated the work of God, and Jethro is a convert as a product, the fruit of that celebration. Now, back away from chapters 17 and 18, and let's ask ourselves one of those questions we mentioned in our introduction. We've considered what chapters 17 and 18, at least the passages that we've looked at, verses 8 of chapter 17 through chapter 18, and what, what this means for us practically. And there are great examples here of, of good leadership. You might have noted there's nothing especially spiritual about those leadership qualities. I'm, I'm drawn to good leaders in the secular world when they exhibit these qualities. And even in the secular world, I think there's some degree of understanding that these are good principles for life and leadership. So what does chapter 17 and 18 mean within the context of the book of Exodus? What does chapter 17 and 18 mean within the context of, of the biblical narrative, the overall history, the story of what God is doing? Think for a moment about chapter 17. The Amalekites come, and the army of Israel goes out to battle against them. Moses raises a staff, Joshua draws a sword, and God gives Israel victory over the Amalekite people. Over a foreign people, God gives Israel victory. Then in chapter 18, Jethro, the priest of Midian, comes back into Moses' life. A, a foreign person representing the Midianite people and pagan idolatry. And, and God turns the heart of Jethro so that he confesses that he's the God of all gods. Now here, here's, here's the message. In chapter 17, God proves that he can conquer his enemy. There is no enemy that has ever or will ever come against God who will come out of that experience victorious. There is coming a day when every hostile human being 
when every force that has opposed itself to the goodness of our God will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God always wins. Indeed, he has won. He has the victory. Christ has overcome the world. There is no enemy that will suitably oppose him. There will come a day when those hostile against God will have filled up the measure of their sins and the judgment of God will fall fatally and finally. There is no opposition party when it comes to the rule of our God. But there's a beauty about what God does in chapter 18 as well. Chapter 17 teaches us that God can conquer his enemy. Chapter 18 teaches us that God can convert his enemy. That's where the amen ought to be said. Because you and I here as believers in the gospel were once hell-bound haters of God. Cast it any way you'd like, but that's who you were apart from Christ. And God has reached down through the work of his Holy Spirit, turned our hearts toward him, made the dead to live, given sight to the blind, speech to the mute, so that our mouths have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. God can conquer his enemy. There is no question about that. Neither can there be any question that God possesses the power to convert his enemy. There's, a, there's another message here for those of you who are here as believers. Here we're at a place of transition in the book of Exodus. Everything from chapters 1 through 17, 7 has really been about the build-up to an exodus from Egypt and the events shortly thereafter. Beginning in chapters 19 and 20, God brings the people of Israel to Mount Sinai and he gives them a law. He says, this is how you live your life. And, and, and the bulk of what remains in the book of Exodus are legal texts where God says, this is what you do about this and this is what you do about that. God essentially gives them their constitution in chapters 20 and following, beginning with the Ten Commandments. Those are the laws of God for the people of God. So that they would live separately, so that their lives would be lived in a way that would be unique from the nations around them, so that other nations might look to Israel and see that they're doing things differently over there. Now, here's the message I believe in the transition itself. God will make himself known by saving his people. Chapters 1 through 17 attest to that. God has made himself known by bringing Israel out of Egypt through the Exodus event. What was the prevailing truth for Jethro when he confessed that God is the God of gods? You have proven yourself by bringing the people of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. You have revealed yourself through these great wonders against and within the Egyptians. They acted arrogantly against Israel, but you showed them. You came and you worked and you moved and you did so powerfully, saving your people from their slavery. God makes himself known by saving his people. But God also makes himself known through his saved people. That's the last half of Exodus. By, by calling us unto himself, by giving us an understanding of his character 
what his expectations are for us in our life. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? God is not only making himself known by saving us from our sin. He's making himself known by what he does in our newly saved lives. To put it very plainly, the way you live your life makes a difference in the world around you with regards to your gospel credibility and the validity of the gospel of Jesus Christ to save us from our sin. The way you live your life matters for the advancement of the gospel so that people may look at you and say, you know, that way, I I knew him back then, and I'm telling you, I don't know what it is, but something's different about him. He's not the same person that he used to be. And I thank God for that every day. And the world should thank God for that every day. And if God has saved you from your sin, you ought to thank God for that every day. You may have been raised in Sunday school and a perfect attendance through high school and came to a place in time in your life when God saved you and the contrast between who you are and who you used to be, it's not as stark for the world to see. But let me tell you, on the inside it is. Your heart was black and cold and dark as night. God touched you through the work of the Spirit. Your fate was as sealed as was mine. My sin may have been grave, But our destiny was the same. We were bound for hell apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sentence of judgment and damnation hung over you just like it did me. And God saved us from our sin. And that ought to bear itself out in the way we walk before this world. In the way we walk before our God. There will be stipulations that you will read of in what remains of Exodus that don't apply in the same way they did in the days of Moses. I'm I'm not sure that anyone's going to get a great sense of conviction by the law. Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I don't know that that's going to be a temptation for any of our people. But what remains of the law, always and forever, is the charge from God who says, Be ye holy, for I am holy holy. God makes himself known in Exodus through saving his people. And in the last half of the book, God makes himself known through his saved people. Now, church folks, there's a word of conviction there for us. Are you walking worthy of your calling? Are are, are you faithful to Jesus when the church is not watching? Are you faithful to Jesus when no one else is watching? Is there a a church Joe and a work Joe, a play Joe and a business Joe? Church Joe has a lot of integrity on Sunday, but when it comes time to file taxes, he's not much on integrity. Church Joe has a, a nice appearance and a clean mouth on Sunday, but church Joe talks altogether different when it comes to playing ball or whatever it is. That's where the testimony goes to die. I'm just telling you, it makes a difference the way we live our life. God makes himself known through through saving his people, and he makes himself known through his saved people. There's a word of encouragement for those of you who may be here without a saving relationship with Jesus. Yes, God has the ability to conquer you. God has the power of death and judgment in his hand. 
and he wields it freely. It's his to give and take. But he has the grace and the mercy, the compassion and the kindness to take the darkest of hearts and to convert them to himself. Aren't you glad for that? If this morning, as an enemy of God, you would bow the knee in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, there is a place in the kingdom for you.